Baxter Bowman podcast. If you're obsessed with the strategies, gear, and stories that will make you a better backcountry bow hunter, you're in the right place. We're independent, unsponsored, and unbiased, so we can cut the fluff and give you detailed advice on what really works and what doesn't. In this episode, we interview Hank Shaw. If you haven't heard of Hank, I'm not sure what rock you're living under, but he's maybe best known for his food blog, Hunter, Angler, and Gardener Cook. You can see that at honest-food.net. He's written over five cookbooks, has won the James Beard Award, which is like winning an Oscar, but in the food world. We're very excited to talk to him, and we cover a lot of topics, so hope you enjoy. Well, Hank Shaw, thank you so much, Hank, for showing to, showing up today and uh, being on our podcast. It's pretty surreal, I was telling, as I was saying before we recorded, uh, to have you on. I've heard you on Joe Rogan. We followed a lot of your stuff, so very, very honored, and it's a milestone in our podcasting, quote-unquote, career here, so thanks. <laughs> it's very nice of you. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm a legend in my own mind. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, to kick things off here, I'm sure lots of people have heard of you, um, and they must have heard some of the things I, I quoted here off in the intro. But you've got a really interesting background and very multifaceted. I mean, f- with the master's degree in history, like having studied all that, cooking, writing, hunting, fishing, gardening, the wild game. Um, there's so many different areas to dive into, but the first question I have for you, Hank, is I'm, I'm curious, um, uh, why history? Like when did that become an interest? And then how, how come you ended up choosing that as like a formal study? No, that's interesting. I don't really get asked that very often. Um, I mean, it's just one of the major subject matter things that you do in middle school and high school. And I was very good at it. And, and I, I like it. I just like stories. I've, I've always liked stories and, I'm fascinated by things that happened before us because it's, you know, I mean, there's the old, if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. And it's, that's not entirely true. It's, but Mark Twain said something to the effect of history doesn't repeat itself, but it sounds awful similar. Uh, and, and it does give you a lot of perspective when people kind of like run around like headless chickens in you, whatever your current day and age is, it's like, well, okay. Well, this has happened like 16 other times and, you know, we've, we've survived that, but it also is helpful to be able to say, Hmm, yeah, this one's brand new and we haven't really experienced anything like this. And, and I, I know because I've looked at, I've looked back, you know, forever and ever and ever. And I'm, and I'm also been very, very interested in kind of human origins, both from a paleontology standpoint and also from that pivotal moment somewhere about between 10 and 11,000 years ago when we decided to farm. And that is a, a really, really interesting moment in human existence that has, it's studied a lot, but I think it could be studied quite a bit more because agriculture started independently in any number of, of places around the globe. And so it's, it's been an interesting thing for my own life in terms of, you know, I've written an essay called gardening versus gathering, right? So I've seen both sides of that coin. On one side, you can have a territory or a turf for wild food and wild edible plants and use that as your as your garden, and it works um, until it doesn't. And I could go into that later, but um, you can also have the exact same issue with, with a garden or with a farm where it works really great until it doesn't. So... Um, that's in looking at how other societies have dealt with that has been really interesting. Wow. That is interesting. Um, in terms of that time when, in terms of your, your interest in studying that time when farming first, uh, became popular, did that inform any of your decisions or interest into getting into hunting or gathering or did hunting gathering come first? Well, gathering came first for sure. So I've been, I've been gathering things by the seaside and edible wild plants and mushrooms. And I've been fishing since, I don't know, I, I can't even remember when I started. So toddler and hunting, I didn't start until I was an adult. So I, I didn't start hunting until I was 32 years old. Oh, wow. Okay. And then was that because your parents were into gathering? Yes. Yes. My mom, um, both my mom and my, my biological dad or, or, it was important to both of them to really instill in their kids the names of things. So, you know, there's an, you know, it's part of human existence that if you can't name something, it doesn't have any, it doesn't exist. It doesn't have any power. 
And so if you just look out your window right now, if you're listening to this and you just see trees and you don't see maple trees, you don't see pine trees, you don't see firs, you don't see elms, well, then you, they don't have any meaning to you. And so that's a thing that my parents taught me at a very early age that this is fescue grass, this is a rose, this is whatever. And, and then the way to keep a little kid interested in it is you can eat this or and you can't eat that, right. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, and then it's funny because there's a great little example of the yew bush. So the yew bush has these pretty little red berries on it and they will kill you dead if you eat a whole bunch of them, but it's not the berry. It's the seed that the berry encloses. That's extremely toxic. It's, it's a, in fact, it's using a, a very, very well-known uh, medicine whose name escapes me right now. I think it's Taxol is the name, <laughs> but. If you, you know, and mom says, don't touch them. We called them squish berries. They'll kill you. I'm like, okay, got it. Understood. And then it was only until I was in my 20s that I realized that, oh, it's just the seed. So in theory, if you felt like it, you could you could separate all the seeds out. And the the, the berry portion tastes quite good. Um, but, you know, you can't tell that to a three-year-old because you're just going to swallow the berries and die. <laughs> <laughs> so, I've yeah. Got a, I've, I've got a one-year-old, so that, that hits home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Same thing with mushrooms, right? Uh, although, although slightly older kids, you know, somewhere about seven, eight, seven to 12, they're extremely good at pattern recognition. So if you teach little kids about edible wild plants and mushrooms, they will have imprinted in their memory the keys. Like hmm. they can see color as, as good, if not better than adults. And so, you know, it's not this color, it's that color. And then they'll remember it. And so I had that education as a kid. So there's a, uh, sometimes I have to step out of myself to explain things to people because it's been imprinted in my memory for 50 years that, you know, Oh, well, but of course it's lamb's quarters. Like how, how could you see that as anything else? And I sometimes I forget that most people in the Western world are green blind in the sense that they, they don't see the differences that I see very clearly. Wow. Uh, and then from there, so you're gathering as a kid with your parents, often was that experience then brought into the kitchen and learning how to cook different dishes? It sort of. Um, so growing up, edible wild plants was, a, it's, was kind of a fun thing. It, wasn't a day, it was not a day-to-day -day issue. It was, you know, we would go on vacation and we would dig clams and pick blueberries and beach peas and, and go fishing and that kind of thing. Or we'd go to a park and do something. Or So it wasn't, it wasn't like a day in and day out. I mean, my mom cooked kind of pretty standard food as, as everybody did, except for the fact that she's um, about the most Yankee Yankee you can get in Yankeedom. Um, <laughs> she's from a, a little town called Ipswich, Massachusetts, which is right near Gloucester. So clams, clams were a big part of our family and seashore, seashore things were a big part of our family and, and, you know, blueberries and that sort of thing. So it wasn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't like Yule Gibbons. So if you're familiar with him, he's kind of the, the father of modern popular gathering and he grew up hard scrabble in the depression. And so he had to gather edible plants for his family. Uh, we didn't have to do that. We did it as something that was uh, something that enriched our family. Gotcha. So then how did the cooking come in into play? When, when did that interest spark? I think the real cooking, not like utilitarian cooking. Utilitarian right. came, cooking came to me as a middle teenager because my mom, it was at one point it was just my mom and me, um, mm -hmm. you know, in the house. So when it's just you and your mom, right. And mom's got to work super hard to make ends meet. And this is when I was still, I mean, I was I had a paper route, but I didn't really have a real job at that point. Um, you cook to to help the family out, right? So I learned how to cook uh, because mom was too pressed, and and I I picked that up. So fine cooking and good cooking came about um, as we got as we got a little bit farther in my in my childhood. My stepfather and my mom, one of the things that they would do when they, you know, it's like, okay, so the, we're going to, we're going to do something special. And that almost always was to go to a really nice restaurant. Like that was the big mm. deal. And so I'm the last of four. And so there's a seven year gap between me and my older sister. And so that gives a, a pretty good period where it's just three of us. It's my mom, my stepdad and me. And 
since I liked good food and they liked good food, I got exposed to very, very, very good restaurants at a very early age because I grew up in New Jersey right outside of New York City. So I got a chance to eat at New York City restaurants in the early 80s, which, you know, so if you're exposed to that as a formative in your formative years, specifically when it comes to to wild game, if you telegraph farther down the road in my life, um, the first venison or the first goose, or the first squab or the first duck or the first pheasant I ever ate was at a fancy Italian or a fancy French restaurant. Oh. So I always associated game with luxury and not with poverty. Wow. That's fascinating. And also I'm, I'm sure every time you gone out, it was a, it was a, like a uh, very special occasion. And so all those positive emotions and positive memories are also associated with that fine dining at such a young age. And then how, when did the formal more quote unquote formal training come into play? I just there? got jobs in kitchens. I'd never went to <laughs> cooking school. So, okay. you know, you'll, I mean, I have had two great professions that are not really well served by schools. One is the newspaper business and one and the other is cooking professionally. Mm-hmm. Both of those professions are better learned by doing than they are by sitting in a classroom. Right. While you were learning those things, did you, did you know that like, wow, this is an interesting combination of learning, learning how to cook really well and also learning how to write. Did it, at that time, did you know that, hey, maybe in the future there are these cookbooks and, and other writings about this type of, type of lifestyle uh, in store for you? No way. <laughs> yeah. No, no. He's an honest man. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I was, a, I was a cook and I was, you know, if you've ever read Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, I was that kind of cook. Um, you know, just sort of ragamuffin, line cook, low-level sous chef. I never ran a restaurant. I never owned a restaurant. I was just, I was a, I was a good professional cook. And then, you know, I ran very seriously as a distance runner for quite some time. So that was a big part of my life. You know, I went to graduate school. Um, you know, I mean, I was in the rave scene. I love that. So I like, it's, yeah, no, I mean, I knew I wanted to be at the time I wanted to be a historian or a foreign correspondent or a foreign diplomat. Um, I wanted, I, I took all the foreign service exams and, but at the time I, I was coming up and I took all those exams, which I, I'm happy to say I passed. They then did a, like a huge moratorium on hiring new career diplomats. So that was that. Um, I would thought about the Peace Corps, but at the time you couldn't go into the Peace Corps if you had any student loan. And I had pretty substantial mm. student loan. And so they wouldn't let me in. So there was that. So I'm like, yep, screw it. I'm just going to get a job and live my life. Interesting. Uh, and then hunting, you said 32 years old is when you got into it. Uh, what was your first experience and, and who, who guided you into that? So a good friend of mine, a guy named Chris Niskanen, uh, he and I worked at the same newspaper in St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, I was on the investigative team and he was the outdoor writer. And so we had fished pretty much from the get-go because we got along immediately. And mm-hmm. and when it came time for hunting season, he started to like, hey, man, you want a duck? Sure. You know, you want a pheasant? Sure. You want some venison? Sure. Because I had had those memories of really good food and I had some French cookbooks. And, you know, if you have any French cookbook of any caliber, right? I mean, maybe unless it's written for Americans, um, it's going to have game. And it's going to have a... So I, I, I cut my eye teeth as a wild game cook with classical French and classical Italian cooking. And so at some point, Niski was just like, you want to come out? I'm like, yeah, you know, I kind of do. And... I liked it a lot at first because even though I was terrible at it, you know, it was a pheasant hunt in South Dakota and I could hit the broadside of a barn, but Niski's ability to read land the way that I had learned to read water um, as a teenager and as a 20 year old um, was really interesting. So if you're, if you're a real, real fisherman, commercial or otherwise, you're real, real, real fisherman. It's not about the rod and reel and the bait. I mean, yes, it is, but it's way more than that. It's where do you drop, where do you drop your line? Um, where do you go? What season is it? What's the tides? Where does the underground structure? Um, you know, and it is baits, and it is presentation, and it is gear, and it's just there's an enormous amount of knowledge that is the difference between someone handing, you know, holding a rod and reel in his or her hand. 
and a, re, a real angler or a real commercial fisherman because you know you don't have to know where you set your nets you have to know where you're to you know to set your lines um, and if you don't then sure you might get lucky but you won't day in and day out yeah and i'm sure baxter understands that one baxter's been fishing since as long as you can remember huh baxter yeah no that was my route into hunting as a lifelong fisherman and then got really into fly fishing and then uh he wanted the feathers, you know, went and then started hunting birds and hey, there you go. Right. There's always some, some ulterior motive to it. Everyone uh, always asks me, Hey man, you know, you shot those ducks. Can I have the feathers? I'm like, I mean, if you come why? to my house, you can, but I'm not going <laughs> to, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't be so bothered as to throw a bunch of feathers on a envelope. Yeah. No, <laughs> serious. Chase them down. Yeah. Well, did, you know, what was the biggest, I mean, it's, there's so much learning with hunting and I feel like it's one of the, the hardest thing with it is, is this barrier to, to learning and figuring out, you know, how to even hunt and where to go. Well, that stuff, like you said, reading the land, what, um, you know, you, you have to push through that. What, what kept you pushing through? Was it the food? Was it the interest in the, like you said, the train, the animals? Like what was the thing you were most excited about? It's a many legged stool. I mean, yes, all of that. Um, you want to succeed at that, which you set out to do. So that's mm -hmm. almost everybody listening to this has a drive to succeed in whatever it is that you are going to put that much emotional energy and that much money and that much time in. So I read a ton of books. Uh, I went on a ton of guided hunts and was a, was, probably was a pest. Well, why are we doing this? Why is it like, I'm not questioning you, uh, you know, in terms of your decision-making, I'm under trying to understand why we're doing this because I want to learn. And so if you, if you approach a guide like that, right from the get-go, like before you even see him, like when you start talking to him, um, that's important because if they, you, you can read that person. And if you, if there are some grumpy old fart, then don't go with them, go with somebody else. And, and I have to this day, you know, as a very experienced outdoorsman, I have been with, you know, with guides that I, I, you know, often I'm, I'm a guest and you know, I didn't pick it where the person is incredibly good at, at getting you on the fish or getting you on the game, but he's just a douchebag. And like, <laughs> like, I'm just not interested in that. And, yep. and I'd rather shoot fewer birds or, or get fewer fish and then have a good experience than, you know, Captain Ahab, you know? Yeah. Oh Yeah. And then that, that's an issue with young people and, and not even just young people, but new people, because, well, let's say, you know, Josh, let's say like you decide that you want to hunt ducks, right? And your first two or three times that you went with a guide, the guy was a prick. Like, mm -hmm. like screw this. I'm, I'm doing something else. That cunning's horrible. Yeah. Yeah, totally. The whole experience will be tainted by the attitude and, and how rude the guide is. Um, yeah. But yeah, similar to you, Hank, my, my first few hunts were guided and I just kept pestering them about just tons of questions and they were really patient with me and especially the butchering and like taking apart the animal was something I was fascinated by and, and they let me get my hands dirty and they actually appreciated it because they're like, wow, most people don't really get their hands dirty here and they have us take care of it. But uh, it was great to get to learn that way. Did you have any other mentors along the way to, as you developed as an outdoorsman? Um, well, I, I want to touch on butchering for one second because mm -hmm. I worked in restaurants. I worked at an Ethiopian restaurant for a while. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we did was we got whole, you know, like basically whole dead animals, usually lamb and goat. And it was my job to break them down. Now, given, I mean, we we're making stews where everything's either cubed or ground or shredded. So it's like, it wasn't doing precise cuts, but that ability to learn the geography of a mammal because as you probably all know, right by now, we're all built the same, more or less. It's just a question of size and, and some of the bones are a little bit longer or shorter, but virtually the, the general framework of a mammal and even of a bird. Um, so most vertebrates are built roughly the same. And when you, when you take them apart uh, for butchering purposes, you learn that, oh, well, you know, you know that this is that there's going to be a joint here and that this muscle group is going to look like this and, and all sort of, and that sort of stuff. And I learned all of that as a, as a, in the kitchen. So that was kind of a good leg up, but in terms of other mentors, yeah, I mean, I end up being, I've become really good friends with a couple of guys out here that, you know, you've, you end up be developing a relationship with them. Um, and you, you, you know, you get friends in your regular life um, who hunt or who fish, and then you learn from that. And it's just a, 
and I actually don't do a ton of electronic learning for hunting and fishing because there's a lot of noise out there and there's a lot of noise that is not uh, relevant to your experience. So I, I really don't care how Cajuns catch their redfish because I don't have redfish. Um, you know, I really don't, actually a better example would be stripers. So stri- I've caught, I don't know, 10,000 striped bass in my lifetime. Easy. And I've caught them in, I don't know, 10 states. But every time I see stripers in a new environment, like I've never caught them in Arizona. There's a bunch of them in, in reservoirs in Arizona. I would shut up and listen because those people know how to catch their stripers. The fact that I know how to catch stripers in other places isn't terribly relevant. And there's a lot of people who just don't realize that. And they try to guide the guide or they try to guide their friend, which is even worse. Um, the only time where my long experience with, say, striped bass comes into play is if we're in that new spot and I, and I have shut up and listened that whole time and nothing's happening. I can then suggest, like, well, what if we try that? And sometimes it works. And so you, you, you kind of have to navigate your way around whatever the local knowledge is, whether it's fishing or hunting, and you have to defer to the locals because they do this every day. Yeah, totally, totally agree. And actually, just fascinating for me, I really want to ask this question, but do you notice the same thing with game meats and cooking? You know, with your, we're talking deer, obviously there's white tail, there's mule deer, there's black tail, that sort of thing. But even within the same species, do you notice a different way you've had to cook things just based on where they come from? So that has less to do with human beings and more to do with, with the animals themselves. So I will always watch or listen to somebody and how they cook their fish or game with an open mind. And because it's, it's how I've gotten where I am really, because you bet I know a bunch of stuff and I probably know more than most. Um, however, a great example was I had a way to cut gizzards that worked really well. And if you have my book, Duck, Duck, Goose, which is my waterfowl cookbook, there is a method for, for cleaning gizzards in there. And so when I did the book tour for that book, I was down in, in Arkansas and I was doing a demo. And one of the things that I did was um, how to clean a gizzard. And then I, when questions and answers came up, uh, a woman was like, well, with all due respect, I think that's kind of a stupid way to clean gizzards. And I'm like all right, <laughs> show me how. And she goes, boop, boop, and it's done. I'm like, mm, oh yeah, 100% wow. better. So now I don't even use that method at all ever. And um, you know, so my point of that is that, yeah, I know a ton about this stuff, but if you, I'd be an idiot to suggest that I, I can't learn new things every single day. And so that from a cooking perspective, the human geography and the human knowledge and the, that local stuff is, is becoming a little bit less important as I am more well-traveled and more experienced and I've seen mm-hmm. more and more things. Um, but it's never going to not be important. So in terms of the animals, yes, so diet is a huge deal. Um, time of year is a huge deal. Species can be a huge deal, but that species is usually a... Um, it's really not the species. It's the species that is how, what they eat um, and where they live. So a great mm-hmm. example are ducks. So there, I don't know, there's 23, 24 some odd ducks that we shoot in the North America. More Sounds about right. Yeah. Give or take. And everybody who's a duck hunter knows that there's a damn huge difference between uh, a pintail and a shoveler. For sure. <laughs> and anchovies and, tasty grain fed beef <laughs> yeah kind of kind yeah. of but it's more like ponds like like shovelers eat pondy stuff so they don't ah, they're not fishy at all they're pondy which is it's a different stink um but you know then there's exceptions within exceptions so another good example are greater bluebills so greater bluebills um it where i live are only saltwater and so they're only going to run up and down the Pacific coast. And for most of the year, they're going to eat clams and shrimpy things. And, and they're, you've got to skin them. They're just, they're rank. However, there is a moment in the winter when a particular set of greater bluebills comes from Oregon to the San Francisco Bay. And they have been only eating eelgrass. 
so when they do that, they taste like a Pacific brand, which is to say one of the greatest waterfowl you'll ever eat in your life. And the way to tell is by the color of the fat. And so those birds you pluck and roast. So you need to develop kind of an intimate knowledge of the animals that are in your region and listen to people, but take it with a grain of salt, because a lot of what people will say is based on hearsay and not personal experience. There are millions of examples of that. I mean, a great one is freshwater drum. Everybody in the planet, like freshwater drum are terrible. You can't eat them. I'm like, well, you're just flat out wrong. You're just, you know, it's just ignorance. And ignorance is curable, of course. But yeah. the reason people say that is because freshwater drum have a tendency to be oily, which is nice if you know what to do with it. However, most mm -hmm. people don't treat their freshwater fish very well. So uh, the freshwater drum is, is, is a fish that you're going to want to catch, bleed. So you either stick your fingers in the gills and pop them or use a knife, put them in a five-gallon bucket of water, let them bleed out, and then get them on ice. I would gut them in a slope moment on the mm -hmm. boat and use, that, use those guts as more further bait for other fish. But, but that's a case where if you don't, if you just keep them in the live well or if you just – or if all you're doing is, is throwing them on the deck, for God's sake, yeah, they're going to get mushy and stinky. Mm -hmm. But that's one of those things where you get this, you know, cultural bias that occurs in, in lots of places. Yeah. Yeah, it makes absolute sense. I think one of the one of the ones I've been working on lately is the mountain whitefish. <laughs> I don't know that. anybody who doesn't know white mountain whitefish. I mean, they're they're yeah. universally liked in my experience, but but yeah. I, mean, I guess maybe not. No, it's fascinating. I don't, uh, you, you, you talk to guides out here and they're just like, you go, don't eat that. That's horrific. It's, and, uh, yeah, I've, well, it's stupid. It is. I know they've been so tasty, but, uh, I mean, smoked whitefish has been a, a market item in North America for 150 years. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I think their, their thing is, oh, that's from the, the upper Northeast, you know, these are different and yada, yada, yada. But, uh, like, you know, it's funny cause these guys will throw them on the bank. They'll, they're trying to get rid of them out of the streams and, uh, yeah, well, that's just flat it, out illegal. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, it's a tough one to watch, but uh, such a good, such a good taste in fish. But, you know, so we have for, you know, for better or worse, like you said, we've, we focus a ton on elk hunting up here. We're doing a lot of, uh, a lot of that day in and out. And a lot of the folks here are packing out the animals, um, you know, in backpacks. We've got a huge cont contingent that's doing bow hunting. Um, but what, you know, for elk in specific and for newer hunters, what do you think, or venison in general, what do you think are some of the biggest errors that guys should focus on avoiding? Um, I know that's kind of a, a lower level question, but I think it's something that uh, would be really helpful for the folks listening to this. Yeah. I mean, I think with, with big game meat in general, really with anything, I mean, this is just this is true with anything. Um, novice cooks cook the tender parts too much in the tough parts too little. Mm -hmm. So you will hear people say, I don't know, man, that backstrap wasn't really good. And you'll they'll send you a picture of it and it's gray. Yeah. Well, I can't help yeah. you, man. Yeah. Uh, and then they'll send, they'll tell you that you're, I love the idea of your recipe of, of that barbacoa with a neck roast, but it's mm -hmm. so tough. I'm like, well, you didn't cook it long enough. You, you twit. I mean, like, <laughs> like just like cook it till it's tender. Like that's the thing. Like if if something is too tough, keep cooking it. It will get tender. And and you know, I'm talking about shanks and shoulders and ribs and neck meat and basically the entire front of the animal. The only variable that you're gonna have to deal with with elk or venison or anything like that is how old was the animal, and. And you know mm -hmm. how many hours do you have to cook it? Sometimes, like you know, you can shoot a raghorn, and you can have venison barbacoa in two hours. But mm -hmm. if you shoot a Boone and Crockett, it might take you five hours. Big yep. deal. Drink more beer. Oh, wow, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. So, the tougher meats—is it generally lower heat and slower, and then the more tender meats, hot and fast? Or yeah, yeah, that's a that's a generalism, but it's a good one. Gotcha. How about with flavors? Are there any particular best practices or, or general things that go well with venison or elk or deer meat? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you would think you, you want to go dark with dark and light with light. I mean, this is, again, it's a generalism, but it's, only, but it's a good one. So you're talking red wine, not white. That does not mean you can't use white wine with, with, with elk. Um, it's just, it's less common and it creates a different effect. Uh, venison and elk and, and the similar meats are all kind of, 
typically seen as darker brooding kind of things. So you're, you're, you're looking at braises, you're looking at stews, you're looking at long, slow cooking, you're looking at asabuco, or, or if you're doing it in the summer, you see barbacoa a lot, which is, um, ideally it's something that, you know, you smoke a big hunk of shoulder or neck, and then you braise it into submission and then shred it for tacos. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the places to look with whatever cuisine that interests you is look at beef, look at lamb, look at goat. And if, and with certain modifications, anything that you do with, with beef or lamb or, or goat, you can do with venison. Now, there are some exceptions. Um, with an elk, you have the opportunity. So uh, the most of the exceptions I'm gonna I'm gonna put in the deer camp. So with elk, you do have the opportunity for some beef cuts that you would not have with anything else. Like you can get a skirt steak, you can do a flat iron steak, you can do whistlers, which are the two lateral muscles along the trachea. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do a lot of cuts that are not available to you with, say, you know, a whitetail doe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, you know, with the, uh, the elk in specific, we've got a lot of people that, like I said, are, are packing it out. Gutless method, two to five miles in. That's how Josh and I hunt a lot of the time. What, in your mind, what's the most underrated thing that they're leaving behind? I mean, I'd say most guys I talk to just take front leg, rear leg, back straps, um, you know, tenderloins, some of the neck meat, and then they're out. But, uh, you know, I think for Josh and I, it's become kind of a personal vendetta to take more and more of the animal over time. But what, what would you think something that folks should be grabbing that they're not grabbing is? Well, I mean, if they're not grabbing the shanks, they need to grab the shanks. So it depends on where they cut the leg. Um, mm-hmm. If they're leaving it all the way to the trotter, um, then they're fine. We'll get the shank. Yeah. But, I mean, just, I don't do the gutless method because I'm just, I'm not like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say on an elk, man, elk short ribs are really good. Mm. I mean, you need a, you need a bone saw, but I mean, there's pocket bone saws. I have two, um, yeah. the neck meat in, in my, I mean, I'll put it this way. I eat shoulders, necks, um, and shanks before I eat anything else in the animal. Wow. Backstraps bore me to tears. <laughs> I mean, they're fine. I mean, it's a, it's a nice steak, but I mean, it's a, it's an okay steak, but I'll tell you what. Uh, a beef ribeye is a hell of a lot better steak than a than a venison backstrap. Oh yeah, and I mean there's nothing wrong with it, and I eat lots of it. But I'm way more interested by slow and low cooking of the front of the animal than I am with the back of the animal. Yeah. Um, well, this is. Let me oops, sorry, answer your going. question. The things that if you're doing that, what you're leaving behind uh, are your that of uh, that's primo, are the cheeks, you know the the jowls on the animal. Mm-hmm. tongue of the animal and the heart of the animal. Like mm-hmm. those would be the things that, that I think that people ignore that are, and in my opinion, treasures like mm-hmm. an elk tongue is a big enough to make a, a batch of tacos de lengua. Okay. And, you know, I mean, I, there's no higher honor than <laughs> it's, huh. it's, it's, a, I, I love tacos de lengua and, I'll I'll probably eat that even before I'll eat anything else on a on a elk. Amazing, yeah. That's um. I I'm ashamed to say I've never taken the tongue out. So that's that's changing this year. Do you, you know when you're butchering the tongue? Do you? Um, I'm just thinking. Do you come in through the mouth itself, or just come from underneath the jaw? Yeah, you do the Colombian necktie. Okay. So you come in underneath the the jaw muscles and yep. and um, you yank it through the mouth, and then you take it off right at the base. It's okay. a little gruesome, but it works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that whole process is right. Interesting. Um, wow. Yeah. And so, this is a personal well, you one. Want for your you. whistlers yeah. too, don't you? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah you're going yeah, you in there get, no matter what you do. Open anyway. So, yeah. So, I mean, if you're, you're going underneath with a tongue and then you're going to, you have to cut those cheeks out if you're, uh, if you want to open that jaw to get your ivories, ivories, yeah. not whistlers. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you call them. Yeah. And this is actually, this is a fun one for me. Cause we've, my wife and I've been debating this for years. Do you, and I've seen you use broth, um, and stock off of bone marrow, but have you ever taken out the bones themselves just to make bone marrow from an elk? Yeah, it's it's okay. Okay, but remember that the long chain fatty acids that are present in cervids, which is mm-hmm. a, a scientific way of saying the fat gets waxy. Yeah, um, that yellow waxy fat. It is 
it's it's there in spades in um in deer and elk marrow that said i've done it the way to do it is to is to do it hot 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 mm. like when they're ready eat them right out of the oven don't let them cool uh and because elk fat and deer fat is delicious if it's piping hot okay but when it cools down it gets that waxy thing now what i have discovered is that i've i know they're not native but i have kind of a a newfound love of the weird bovids that you can hunt in, in like New Mexico and Texas. <laughs> yeah. So, Josh just did some axis deer in Hawaii. So he's, uh, he's loving the exotics. Yeah. So I shot a nil guy in South Texas okay. in huh. December and they're a bovid. They're an Indian for, from India and, um, they're a trippy looking critter. Yeah. And, just Googling it now. Yeah. And they're bovids, right? So I have the marrow bones from them and I've got the fat from them. And that's exactly like beef fat, which wow. is to say way better. <laughs> so I'm gonna, not going to tell you to not do marrow. Uh, well, I would do like, unless you're really, really skilled with the saw, you're going to want to do the, the, uh, you know, the, the cylinders. Mm-hmm. So yep. not the trench. You know yep. what I'm talking about where you cut the, yeah, the not, femur lengthwise? Uh, crosswise, not lateral. Yeah, that the yeah. if you do the trench, that's a bit tricky with a saw. Okay. I'm not telling you not to do it, but you'd have to be good with a saw. It's much yeah. easier to to saw off the knobs of the femur and then cut the and cut it into into nice yeah. cylinders. And it'll be good. Uh you're just gonna want to eat it piping hot. Okay. Yeah, we gotta try it at least once, but that was uh that was definitely a curio for me. Something I've always wondered about. You leave the bones behind a lot of the time or you you bone it out. Yeah, right. So it's just uh seems like a waste, but who knows? We'll figure it out. Right. And I like and to shoot cow elk with inside of the truck. That's, that's my opinion. <laughs> 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 Although, you know what? I have this thing. The worst elk we've ever eaten was a cow. I think it was obviously an older one or it yeah. was, you know, it was not uh it was not dry. I, d- I don't know, but uh I always raghorns. I love the raghorns. Yep. That's you are correct. You are correct. <laughs> like the if I have my choice, like if I could kill any elk in the world, uh a year in and year out, it'd be a rag. Yeah. I don't have a house big enough for a bull elk. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, like so I, I told Josh this year, I can't pass them. They're too tasty. <laughs> yeah, like I'm looking at these guys who's like, yeah, I shot this 406. I'm like, what the? Like, we must yeah, have vaulted ceilings. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Hank, uh, I wanted to circle back on something you mentioned earlier. You you said you eat the neck, shank, shoulder first in an elk. Could you tease the audience with like a handful of names of different dishes and descriptions mm-hmm. to to show us the possibilities with those cuts? So with elk shanks are, are long, right? So they're about a foot long, if not longer. And so what I will do is I'll take a knife and cut to the bone um, in, you know, three to four finger cylinders things, you know, and then I use a saw to cut into cut sort of cylinders of meat out of the shank to make asabuco. So asabuco is an Italian dish and it's slow braised, um, typically veal or um, sometimes beef shanks and sometimes lamb shanks, but it's just a slow braise. And the thing about the the shanks and the neck and the uh, shoulder is that there's so much connective tissue that will drive you insane if you're going to try and grind it because it will ruin your grinder. But when you cook it slow and low and moist, you know, as a braise or as a stew, that becomes an advantage because that connective tissue will ultimately melts and it slicks up the meat and it gives you the impression that it's very fatty, even though it's not. So the mouthfeel is like uber tender fatty meat when it's not actually fatty. It's that collagen that is melting and that takes time. I mean, it's kind of a Sunday thing. Um, or it's something that you do day one and then you eat it day two or day three, but that's not a small, I mean, it's a small price to pay for, for a dish that is significantly better than anything else that you can do with it. So that's the general method. And on an elk with a shoulder, I would have like a clump of sinewy connective tissuey shoulder bit because I, I always cut the flat iron stakes out of the big blade of the, of the shoulder blade on an elk. Um, And there's a, there's a method. I I have a tutorial on how to do that on my website. Um, But yes, like big neck roast. Neck roasts are almost exclusively for barbacoa because life without barbacoa is very sad. Um, (laughs) And so you take a big, big old gnarly hunk of, of shoulder or of neck and you smoke it 
you salt it well overnight and then you smoke it for like i don't know three hours you know it's i mean you're not cook, you don't it doesn't matter if it's cooked through because then you what you do is you move it to a pot and then you braise it in a, with some mexican flavorings and I, again this recipe is both in my book and on my website um and then you braise it until it's shreddable and then what i do and this not everybody does this but what i do is because there is no fat in it it's shredded it's all perfect right so i'm going to get a big old cast iron pan and i'm going to put a bunch of manteca fresca you know some uh, you know the kind of mexican lard that you get at the at the carniceria you know mm-hmm. not the shelf stable stuff that the it's kind of brownish and it's in the refrigerated section you put a i don't know quarter cup half cup of lard in there i mean come on live a little and get that hot and then you lay that shredded meat out in one layer and don't touch it and let it sear just on the one layer and then you serve it in burritos or tacos or whatever so you have a combination of very crispy on the outside and extremely tender and silky on the other side and that combination i guarantee you if i did that and i did back straps and i did you know smoked ham or whatever the barbacoa is going to go first wow. every single time it's a good thing we didn't do this before lunch. <laughs> wow, yeah, seriously. Um, so would that be the dish? I so I don't know a lot of other hunters besides Baxter and maybe a couple of people, like you know, growing up in the Bay Area. So often I'm the one introducing venison or elk to somebody for their first time. What would you say is the best go-to dish if you were to serve game meat or maybe let's focus specifically on elk and deer to a non-hunter? I think that's a good one mm-hmm. uh, because then they're just going to eat a taco and be like, oh, tacos. <laughs> and, you know, if you don't like Everybody tacos, tacos. Yeah. you need to do like, you, I, I, if I was president, I would say, if you don't like tacos, you should be deported. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sound by the episode, I think, right? <laughs> that's just me. Um, <laughs> but that's a really good one. A another good one would be to to take a hind a single muscle hind leg roast, um, which is how I do it anyway because elk elk muscles are quite big, mm-hmm. and and salt that one and smoke it only. It's like a tri tip. If you guys are familiar with tri tip, you basically take a hind leg roast and you cook it like a tri tip, which is to say you throw it in a smoker. And, and the trick is to see how long can I smoke this thing in, before the interior gets to be about 130 mm-hmm. and, you know, or 135. And then when you slice that, it's virtually identical to tri-tip. Really? So that's another one. Oh. Um, wow. If you properly know how to cook backstraps, and, and what I mean by that is what you want to do with a backstrap is no, don't make steaks. Although, yes, you could make steaks with, a, with a, an elk. I don't. You, you really should never do it with a deer because it just they're just stupid, sad little steaks. Um, <laughs> but what I do is I will cut lengths of backstrap, boneless lengths of backstrap. You can cut chops. Chops are fine. But I do boneless lengths of backstrap about a foot long. Mm-hmm. And I, I cook that. And then when that is perfect, then you cut medallions from, from that. And then what happens is, I mean, there's a couple of reasons. One, it's easier to cook a length of back strap to a proper temperature than it is um, a steak because of surface area. You have a bit more uh, control and a bit more time to mess up. So if you're not perfect every single time, then you're good. The other thing is you reveal how pretty the meat is with the medallion. Whereas if you have a steak or a chop, then you're really relying on the sear, the crispy sear on the outside to be perfect. So that when they cut into it, they see how pretty the meat is. That's beautiful when you pull it off. But if you don't pull it off, you're going to have really sad meat that's been overcooked. So I I advocate this method until and unless you're just a master at cooking a meatless or a fatless steak. Because fat is an insulator. Fat is an insurance policy. The reason why you can get that bark um, on a beef steak and then cut it open and it's perfect is fat. When you have zero fat, you heat up and you cool down very, very quickly. So it's doable, but it's not easy. And so this length method works far, far better. Wow. That's fascinating. I hadn't heard that one. 
Um, I have a bit of a random question. Where does the answer the is quote un- <laughs> 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 nailed it. Where does quote unquote g- gaminess come from? Like, and and what is it? And how do people? How did? What's the best way to hide that? Well, I have an actual. I wrote an entirely long article on gaming meat and what, what the deal is, and uh-huh. uh, I definitely would refer you to it uh, in the show notes or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the short version is there are two things that civilians think of are, are gamey. And I, I say civilians, uh, meaning people who don't routinely eat game meats. So if you don't routinely eat game meats, the single biggest source of what they perceive as gamey is, is the fact that the animal in question ate something other than corn. <laughs> because virtually all domesticated store-bought supermarket meats are finished or entirely fed on corn. So it develops a very specific flavor profile that we associate with as normal. Um, Years ago, we did a mallard tasting. And so we had mallards here from California from very different regions, and they had very different diets. So we had one that was eating acorns up in... That's interesting. Yeah. You know, acorns up in the in the Sierra Nevada. We had natural marsh in the grasslands. We had uh, rice up in the Sac Valley. And mm-hmm. we had corn in the Delta. And so only I knew which was which. And I cooked them all skin on, salted, and seared medium rare. And then everybody... We invited a whole bunch of people over and we gave them little cards. And we asked them which ones they liked the best. Every single person, well, I'll put it this way: nobody voted. No, nobody chose corn as number one. Hmm. They all said it was nice, but it was boring. So the natural corn. feed, the the grasslands bird was the was the champion, and then uh, the second place was the acorn eating one from the Sierra Nevada. Hmm. So, that makes. Oh, sorry, keep going. So gamey wise is like, oh well, this doesn't taste normal. So they like the word the word I have in my personal lexicon for meat not tasting what I think it is is gamey. So it's just a lack of vocabulary to, to a lot of extent. Yeah. However, yeah. however, there is real gamey meat. <laughs> so, <laughs> We've been so there. If you are used to eating wild animals uh, and you do understand that there's going to be a different flavor animal to animal. For me, gamey is either poorly handled, so it's it's kind of rotty. Um, you know, wasn't really handled very well and is kind of stinky. Um, or it was a rutting buck, or it was a larger uncastrated wild hog, which is to say, really any wild hog over about 100 pounds. They're, they're going to smell like your nads in August. I mean, it's just not good, <laughs> it's just not a good smell. And like, can you can you mitigate it? Sure, but I can do chef magic on a stinky old boar hog and about two thirds of the people eating will know. Yeah. Wow. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Do uh, actually, this is, oh man, we're going all over the map, but curiosity, what has been your experience with antelope? Are you an antelope fan or is that, oh, yeah. uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that's another one. That's a classic case of, yeah. so yeah, depending on where you hunt them, they eat a lot of sagebrush. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to be kind of a pre-seasoning going on and it just is what it is. But there is real gaminess involved with antelope, largely because people don't know how to really deal with them. Like, the best way to think about an antelope is think of it not as a as a mammal. Think of it as a fish. Whoa! If you were to think of antelope as a fish, you would treat it way better, and more people would like antelope mm. because you hunt antelope in hot weather, virtually always. Yeah. The body temperature of an antelope is higher than that of a deer or an elk. So they're already running hot. Yeah. If you've if you've ever shot one, you know basically when you shoot an antelope, it's like ah, I'm dead, and it falls over, <laughs> and because they're super nervous animals, right? Yeah. And deer are less nervous. I mean, yeah, they're nervous, but they're like deer run, yeah. antelope fall over, and their hide holds heat way better than a deer does. You'll you'll see antelope hanging out in a field in Wyoming when it's 40 below and be like, "Hey man, what's going on?" And it's because totally toasty. Yeah, or they're like, oh, "We're we're a little cold, but we're all right." <laughs> and so all of those like, okay, it's hot when you hunt it. Their their hide holds heat better. They're hot to begin with. They have a high metabolism. You know, so all of those combine and with the, the human element, which is to say, okay, 
I'm, I'm guessing that you two don't do this, but traditionally, if you're an antelope hunter, let's say the three of us are hunting antelope and Josh, you shoot your, you shoot your antelope first thing in the morning. And then Baxter, you shoot yours, you know, I don't know, two hours later, but I can't buy a shot. I've missed three. And like, I just know I like, finally, it's like two o'clock in the afternoon. I finally get my antelope. Now we got them. So my antelope's fine. Josh, yours is hosed. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Interesting. So in, in general, um, to get rid of as much gaminess as you can, what are the best practices as soon as that animal is down? Uh, to gut it, you know, gut it right there on the right where it fell or close to it. And, and if it's not cold out, which, you know, we're increasingly hunting in warmer and warmer climates, um, to consider getting it out of the skin very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, I will often do it very quickly, <laughs> not necessarily like where it fell, but I'll often gut it, drag it to someplace, um, and then and then get it out of the skin. So that that process goes a long way towards defeating gaminess. Now, yeah. there's an elk specific thing that you should know. Elk are big animals, so even if you if you gut it and skin it, if it's not that cold out. You know how thick and big an elk hind leg is. It's just oh, yeah. a big, just ocean of meat. You can get something called bone sour, where the that internal temperature persists long enough for bacteria that have been that have been entered into the into that system from where you cut it off at the ball joint, or you know if you cut it off the shank, it can rot the meat from the center. And so you get this stink and it's kind of a green tinge it's called bone mm. sour and it's, it's not curable. You, you can't do anything about it. Yeah. And so what I would do is if you're, especially if you're bow hunting for elk, which is typically in September, when you get that hind leg off, what I would do is I would separate the shank from the, uh, from the trotter and separate the, the, the shank from the main part of the leg. And then I would run my knife from where it attached to the shank, tapping the point of the bone to the ball and socket joint. Hmm. So what you do is you've opened up an avenue uh, to cool off that meat at hmm. the center. Now, you've also opened up an avenue for bacteria and blah, blah, blah. So you've got to be careful. But in terms of cooling the meat down quickly, that's your best bet. Oh, it's Water, like splitting it. Yeah, you're all you're not really fully splitting it, but you're just kind of opening it up. You'll you'll do the rest later, but you're you're mm -hmm. that's giving it more surface area to cool out. It's the very it's the exact same concept of if you've got, I don't know, if you're trying to make fried rice, for example, you always make fried rice with cooked cold rice. So if you if you're in a hurry, you cook your rice and you spread it on a sheet pan in as thin a layer as possible to cool off, and it cools out much faster that way. Right. So this is the the meat is the same way. Um so the the deal is Game bags are important. You want them because if you're if you're opening up this much of the animal to the outside elements, you need a, those game bags for to keep flies and dirt off. Um, I don't love hunting big game, at least bucks and big game, in um, in, in the middle of the rut. I just don't. Yeah. Um, now my my the ideal hunting time is like right when the rut starts, like when maybe half the animals are not even in rut yet. Mm -hmm. So they're still in really good condition. They're not super flooded with hormones. They haven't been beating the hell out of each other for a week or a month or a, more than that. Mm -hmm. And, and so there are all kinds of studies that show that late rut and post rut male cervids are just in wrecked condition. Mm. And I, from, from a cook's perspective, I don't want that animal. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Hank, and uh, I want to go over and give you a chance to talk a little bit about the books. I mean, you've written quite a few of them, and uh, so you started with Duck Duck Goose. We mentioned that. No, earlier. I started with Hunt oh, Gather Cook. In Hunt Gather Cook. Yeah, ten years in 2011. ago. Right, ten years ago. Wow, Duck Duck Goose in 2013, yep. Buck Buck Moose in 2016, Pheasant Quail Cottontail 2018, and then was there one after that before Indeed. this year? Indeed, Hook Line and Supper just came out. Just came out. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious. Even though you grew up gathering and fishing first what how come you hook line and sinker was the last to come out is it because there was just so much experience that you had to go through to get it into one book or 
curious about the order of those. That books. is exactly right. So Hook, Line, and Supper was the hardest book that I've ever written because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I've I've caught fish and cooked fish and eaten fish in virtually every state in the United States and f- more than half of Canada and even in Mexico. And so I, I, I also waited a while because what I really wanted to do is I don't like to write something until I can stand in front of an audience anywhere this book is sold and answer questions off the top of my head. So 10 years ago, if some, if I was in Louisiana and somebody asked me about all the fish in the bayou, I would have only limited, limited knowledge, but now I know those fish. Same thing is true in Alaska and Maine and, and, and Iowa. And so I needed to fish more. I needed to cook weirder, more unusual fish. I needed that experience to be able to say, well, you know, if you don't ice both in and clean them on the deck, they're going to turn into wallpaper paste. And like, that's a tricky fish. And like, if you don't have tin snips or an axe, there's no way you're getting inside an alligator gar. You know, that's, so there's, and I, you only learn that from doing. And then the other piece to it was, I need this book to be as useful to me here in California as it is to somebody in Alaska, to somebody in Wyoming or Montana, as to somebody in Georgia or Maine. And you cannot really hang your hat on species if you do that. You have to hang your hat on structure. You have to hang your hat on these fish are all generally worked the same in the kitchen. So if you used a crappie or a porgy or a, a surf perch, they're all going to work fine. And they're all from different regions of the country. And so I, I separated the book not by species, but by method of cooking. And, and, and with a very, very big nod to the fact that everyone loves fried fish. If you, if you've, if you don't like fried fish, it's because you've not had good fried fish. You're out of here with the people that don't like tacos, right? That's the, oh, uh, no. I give a little bit of a, <laughs> of a caveat. There are some people who have not had good fried fish. Okay. So good fried fish Fair. doesn't leave your fingers greasy. Good fried fish is, is, is actually lower in fat than sauteed fish. And, you know, and I, so I go through in fine detail of how to make the best fried fish or how to make the best smoked fish or raw fish or whatever, whatever. And, and I, I take all my books, take a global perspective as well, because I do not like, I don't, well, I don't want to be constrained and B so many people in so many parts of this planet have so many interesting things to do with so many you know, proteins that it would be crazy not to like, Hey, no, the Chinese do this amazing thing. The Mexicans do this amazing thing. And the Germans do this amazing thing. And, and, and I want to introduce that to all my readers. Wow. Yeah. The books, the blog is legendary. Uh, And I want to be respectful of your time, Hank. Uh, Is there anything else that you wanted to leave our listeners with um, before we go over where they can find you, et cetera? I think, it, you have to just be okay to fail. Um, I think what I do with my books and my recipes and my website is to give you a guide so that you will fail less. But I can't be in your kitchen with you. What I can do is I can give you incredibly tested, tested by normal humans, by the way, not chefs, recipes so that if this is your tenderloin of your elk, and you follow one of my recipes for tenderloin, I'm doing my level best to help you succeed. However, you're going to want to strike out on your own. Use me, use other authors. Uh, you know, there's a guy named Jesse Griffiths who does really good work as well. Um, and, and if it fails, that's okay. You know, it's, it's disappointing. I've been there. Everybody's been there. Um, the one thing that is bad and that I see a lot of people get, and I get it too, is the stage fright with the meat in your freezer. Like, oh man, I don't want to cook that because like I only have the one th- of whatever that is and I don't want to yeah. mess it up. So it just sits there in the freezer for a year and a half. <laughs> and it <laughs> is messed up. <laughs> right? Food is meant to be eaten. And I mean, I'm not saying, just, oh, just go kill another elk because it could be three years before you kill another elk. But Oh, and you know, the caveat to this is take notes, take notes for the love of God, take notes, 
you know, whether it's in the margins of my books or in a notebook that you keep, I keep notebooks um, because if it is that elk tenderloin that you cooked and, and you didn't like it, write down what happened because then the next time you get an elk tenderloin or whatever, mm-hmm. then you can refer to that and be like, I'm not going to make those same mistakes. I might make whole new ones, but I'm not going to make the same mistakes. And you become a better cook over time by doing that. Wow. Wise words. So Hank, for people who want to learn more, keep in touch with you, follow what you do. Where do you typically like to send them? Where can they say hi? So the core of what I do is my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. It, uh, you can get to it at huntgathercook.com. Uh, and so Hunt Gather Cook is my general handle at kind of everywhere. I am Hunt Gather Cook on Instagram and, I, and I'm pretty active on Instagram. So that's a place that you can definitely find me. And I also run a private Facebook group uh, called Hunt Gather Cook. And it's, you have to answer questions to get in because um, I try to keep it as drama-free as possible. So it's really, really a spot on Facebook for people to improve their ability to cook wild foods, whether it's you know edible plants and mushrooms to elk or fish or whatever. And so just say that you heard me on this podcast and, and I will let you in. Uh, but yeah, I would say the website. So Hunter Angler Gardner Cook and my books are available. <laughs> my books are available wherever fine books are sold. Um, <laughs> it's true. Like so, yep. you can buy my books through my website, or you can buy them from your local books uh, bookseller, or you can buy them at, on Amazon. So whichever uh, method that you want to buy books, you can find them and um, help a guy out. Thanks. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, and we will link them all in the description. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Hank, for your time, for coming on our little show here. It's been, I've learned so much. I'm definitely going to be re-listening to this one and using some of the stuff this season. So thank you so much again. Yeah, thanks for having me on.